0: Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide
1: in-person
2: services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com.
1: The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of Central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at UPMC.com findadoc.
2: Welcome to The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar. 98-year-old former President Jimmy Carter announced recently that he was entering into hospice care. Even though many families have had a loved one who has opted for hospice, there are others who may not know what hospice is, what services it provides, or may have heard some myths surrounding hospice. Joining us on the program today to discuss hospice are Dr. Maria Olander, who is a medical director, and Susan Resvy, who is director of family services with Hospice of Central Pennsylvania. I want to welcome both of you to the program today. Thank you so much for having us. Sorry, let's start off talking a little bit about President Carter, not necessarily him specifically, but his announcement that he was entering into uh, hospice care. Uh, Many people, when they heard that, Dr. Ollander, uh, thought to themselves, oh, well, President Carter is about to die, that uh, he has a terminal illness, that he's not going to live much longer. Is that necessarily the case?
1: So I'm going to say yes in that. My understanding of what his decision, and, you know, in general hospice care, is that a patient has a terminal diagnosis of less than six months, and it's clear that he elected to choose this benefit to provide services to him at the, you know, anticipated last six months of his life. Can we, as the medical community, ever say that there's a definitive six-month-or-less prognosis, you know, with absolute clarity? We can't. We don't have a crystal ball. But given the circumstances that he, you know, was found eligible to receive hospice care and, you know, joined hospice, then I would say with, you know, pretty consistent understanding that his prognosis likely is in the range of less than six months at this time.
2: There may be some who would question why the former president would do it that way and say, I'm about to uh, enter into hospice care mm-hmm. and not say, I have a terminal illness mm-hmm. or here's the illness in which I'm, uh, I've am i been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that a decision that is made for... Uh, by the patient, by the doctor saying, you know, here's a a way to do it, maybe it softens the blow somewhat.
1: You know, it's possible that they had a conversation, given that he is such a high profile individual, you know, obviously I don't know the background of his medical history, but if his decision was to pursue this level of care, um, he would have inherently had a conversation with his medical team to say, things are not looking as, you know, they're going in the direction that we wish they were. Perhaps that's a conversation they had and said, at this point, it's really reasonable to talk about services, you know, specifically hospice, that are catered towards care of the dying patient in the last months of their life. And those are such a multidisciplinary <laughs> level of services that they encompass a lot of the needs that the dying patient has, and it can be really valuable at this point in his life. That's mm-hmm. probably why he elected to have this benefit at this time.
2: I've experienced this many times over the years when a conversation becomes timely maybe mm-hmm. it's identified by me or uh, someone else in, in in the public as more timely because a well-known person announces that uh, they're suffering from a disease or a well-known person has uh, made a big you know something big that uh, a lot of families a lot of people don't like to discuss mm-hmm. i'm wondering we, you know, we're doing this. Hospice of Central Pennsylvania uh, sent an email to me saying, would you like to have this, this conversation? It's, it's a valuable conversation. But have you noticed that when a high-profile person like former President mm-hmm. Carter uh, announces has something having to do with hospice, that you get more inquiries?
1: Um, I would say that there's more interest around the subject, that okay. there's more people that are looking for information because you know number 1 this is a scary topic it's mm-hmm. not something that you want to have casually it's not something that our medical community even supports on a regular basis which we hope to change but we really advocate for those early timely purposeful conversations when it comes to these level of discussions i feel that you can never have enough of this kind of talk with you know your primary doctor whoever you see on a regular basis because they can be so useful to have earlier on in any kind of disease process. And that's why we're kind of really excited about, you know, talking about this today.
2: Mm-hmm. This is a recipe. of uh, your Director of Family Services with Hospice of Central PA. Uh, let's start with kind of a basic Hospice 101 question. What is hospice?
0: Well, as Maria was saying, hospice care is a real multidisciplinary approach to end of life care, and I think one of the things I'd want to add to what Maria said is those discussions with patients and families are really important in determining goals of care, and when you are at a point where your loved one. Um, Is not really responding to aggressive treatment, or maybe there aren't any other options, and the focus becomes more comfort and quality of life, and how do we want to do this now that we know we have limited time, hospice is a really good option because it allows the individual to receive care where they want to, which may be in their home, or it could be in a skilled nursing facility or assisted living or you know any, situ- any living situation you want. And then how much care do you need, physically and also emotionally? So hospice looks at the patient and the family as a unit of care. So it's not the traditional medical model where all the attention is on the medicines and the physical. And yes, there's a lot of attention on that because that's why the patient is with us, because they have medical needs. But we also are there to help the family and the patient to just cope with what's going on, um, how do we provide care? We've never done this before. I love my, you know, my mother, my husband, but I'm not a nurse, and so we do a lot of teaching. We provide services that help families with personal care and bathing, and we have nurses coming in, but we also provide social workers, chaplains, volunteers, um, actually even complementary therapies of massage and music, as as very important pieces of this because it's not all about the medical. So how, you know, what's on the patient's mind? What does he or she need to take care of before the end of their life? Are there conversations that need to happen? Are there unfinished business items that need to be taken care of? Are there children in the home? Um, How are we going to take care of our loved one as their needs increase? So we spend quite a bit of time focused on the family, Um, in addition to the patient. So it really is a wide range of physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual care for both the patient and family. And family is who they define as family. So it could be traditional family members, or it could be friends, co-workers. It could be a
2: variety of people. Is it too simplistic to say that the goal is the comfort of the patient? I think that's a perfect yeah, way to
1: describe it. Absolutely. In all the ways that we seek comfort at the end of life, whether that be a physical comfort or an emotional comfort, mm-hmm. a spiritual or a psychosocial comfort, those are all of the goals that we hope to accomplish for that patient and that family unit. And those are the ways that our interdisciplinary team members work to achieve those goals. And this takes time. That's mm-hmm. why I think getting back to your point of having that timely communication and conversation with your you know, primary physician. We want you to have that conversation early so that you have the time to utilize those hospice services throughout the course of that end-of-life process. Unfortunately, we see a lot of patients coming onto hospice care in the last days, sometimes mm-hmm. even the last hours mm-hmm. of their life. And I wish that we could provide a more robust experience from them for from um, you know the standpoint of all the services that hospice can provide, but sometimes it's just not practical or, or we're even capable of doing so in the last, you know, day or two of life. And we really want to have those upstream, you know, conversations.
2: You said uh, earlier, Dr. Olander, that uh, you wish that more physicians mm-hmm. uh, knew more or would have these conversations with their patients mm-hmm. about hospice care. But you also just said having the conversation with yes. your physician. Yes. So is it, are those conversations not happening as often as they should?
1: I will say that there is a nuance to those conversations that is really um, sometimes difficult and uncomfortable to bring up. You know, I'll say in the medical community, the fear of death is a very real thing. You know, we don't get trained often in the medical community when, you know, you go through medical school that death is a normal part of life. I had the really unique experience of having a full month of education in end-of-life care as well as palliative you know, geriatric medical care when I was a medical student. I cannot say the same for a lot of other medical schools. That viewpoint is changing now. We are seeing that younger physicians are being more you know, minded in that end-of-life journey with education guiding them throughout their career process. That wasn't the case years ago. And that's a really valuable point of education to consider when you're talking with a physician. I think any any physician in their role will encounter an end-of-life process. It's just the nature of you know what we do. But being able to have a a meaningful conversation, even if it's just to open up that discussion, to say, I think things are not going the way that we all hoped. Perhaps it's time to think about a different plan of care. And a lot of times they actually utilize my colleagues from palliative medicine um, who can help with those more robust conversations, who can kind of discuss those goals of care like Susan said, who can have conversations where it's meaningful to talk about you know, precise changes in a patient's clinical status and how that affects their goals moving forward. Those are timely conversations to have. And we advocate for earlier conversations because then you have the time to make some plans when things aren't as chaotic at the very end of life, and that's what we hope. We hope to provide those services with you know respect to all of the interdisciplinary team members that can help that patient and family, and not make it so kind of you know just chaotic at the end of life.
0: That's scary, yeah, scary.
2: scary. You mm-hmm. know, Susan, what you were describing earlier when you were talking to me, I, I have to admit, I did not realize. All the things that you described that were you know, thinking about bills, thinking about uh, you know, things you wanted to do, what needs to be done, all those kind of things. And I, the thought crossed my mind. It was, okay, do I really want to be bothered with all those things if I know I'm near the end of life? So that goes back to talking about them earlier.
0: Mm -hmm. That's true, because what's important to me may not be as important to you. So if I'm the kind of person who's always lived in chaos, say, (laughs) then I'm probably going to die in chaos, and I'm not going to be concerned but I've worked with many people over the years who are just very organized. They took care of their family. They like things in order. And I've seen these people get every single thing in order before they died. not just their funeral, mm-hmm. but, like, who's going to take care of – they worry about family. Who or pets. Is, or pets. Mm-hmm. Who is going to survive me, and are they going to be cared for? And who's going to take care of them? Is there going to be enough money for my wife to stay in the house? Mm-hmm. A lot of these very practical things that they really work toward getting um, taken care of, or who's going to take care? Of. We have a lot of people that you know worry about their animals. So so and so promises, I will take the dog. I promise you, okay, and that's off their plate. So it really depends on what's important to them. I I was thinking, as Maria was saying, what we what we say to families, what I try to say to new staff employees with hospice is. Our job isn't to, like, drag people down a certain road. It's to walk next to them and help them figure out where in the road they want to go. And when they come to Crossroads, what's important to them? You know, and if it is, we'll do what we can to help them achieve that or complete that. And if it's not important to them, then it's, it's not important.
2: Our guest today, Dr. Maria Olander, medical director, and Susan Resivi, who is director of family services with Hospice of Central Pennsylvania. We're talking about hospice today. A lot of basic questions, and there are some myths surrounding hospice as, as well. You talked, Susan, earlier about medications and care, the level of care. If a patient says, I don't want to take those pills anymore, can they stop it?
0: Yes, they can. I mean, that's part of what one of the uh, positives of hospice is the the patient and or their family, depending on the situation, um, they're in charge of their care. And so they know what medications they're taking. We have to call them to schedule visits. It's not like in the hospital where you're on the health provider's turf. Now we're on their turf. I would say when people um, want to make decisions about their care, we just talk with them to make sure they understand the pros and cons of their decisions, and what is really the issue. Sometimes it's that they can't swallow as many pills. Maybe they don't like how they feel when they take the pills. And so we try to, well, we don't try. We do talk with them, and that's where Maria and her staff get involved with what medications do they really need. If they can't swallow, should it be liquid? I mean, we really try to work with them because we don't want the patient to suffer unnecessarily. So what is the reason for sometimes people, it might be a spiritual issue. Um, I think I deserve to suffer. I've not been a really good person. And so if I suffer here, maybe I'll have a better life after death. I mean, it could be that, um, that they deserve to to be uh, in pain. Um, So we do spend time exploring that.
2: Does a patient get 24-7 care?
0: Unfortunately, not physically. In the home 24 hours a day, we do have limits. We are really a supportive service, so our our services come in and out of the home. Um, but we do have nursing staff and medical providers on, on staff 24 hours a day. So family members, caregivers can call in or the patient with questions, concerns. We do what we can to manage over the phone. We make visits as needed during the night. So they always have, they don't have to run off to the emergency room or call their own physicians. They can just call us. Mm-hmm. as the first stop.
2: Dr. Olinger, you touched on this earlier, but how is someone referred to hospice And can a person refer themselves to hospice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So usually uh, you will have a referral from your primary care physician or whichever specialty physician you see. They will send a referral to the hospice of your choice. You as the patient are able to say, you know, I want to sign up with this hospice or that hospice. Um, The physician can make a recommendation, but ultimately it is the choice of the patient. Otherwise, a patient can call in themselves and say, you know, I have this disease process. I want to be evaluated for hospice care. Can you please send out a nurse so that we can talk about my disease process? What we'll do is we'll get an order from your physician to see you. If they feel that you're terminally ill and eligible for hospice care, they will provide us an order. Typically, they fax over an order, you know, can submit it electronically. But we will get that order and we'll be able to, you know, review your medical records, discuss with you what your goals of care are. And if those are all aligned and, you know, considerably appropriate, yeah, then absolutely, we can admit you.
2: Hmm. Uh, Paying for this. I know there are a lot of people who are wondering, okay, does my insurance company pay for this? Does it come out of my own pocket? Does my family pay for it? I mean, obviously, what you're talking about is health care. And health care is expensive in this country today. So, Susan, let me ask you, do insurance companies pay? Who does pay?
0: Yes. Fortunately, um, Medicare started the... um, the ball rolling back in the 80s when they um, established the Medicare hospice benefit, which does pay for hospice care in its entirety. And that covers the people services that we send in and related medical equipment and supplies and medications. Um, And it's paid for in full. Other insurance companies have fallen into line over the years. So most insurance companies do have some form of hospice benefit. And we help families check that out at the beginning so they so they know because people do worry about that. But most insurance companies, even medical assistance, um, provides for a hospice benefit. And if people don't have coverage, we still provide care regardless of ability to pay um, with our hospice. Since we are a nonprofit, um, we, we don't turn anybody away. I understand
2: you actually have uh, a few events coming up that, uh, and I assume that some of those funds go toward helping those people who can't pay. Yes,
0: we, we do quite a bit of fundraising as a nonprofit. And we do have one event coming up in April, um, a gala event that will benefit our Carolyn's House, which is a residential facility for, it's a six bed unit for um, people at the end of their life. And so this will benefit the care there.
2: Hmm. Uh, there are so many questions that, uh, that that I'm sure a lot of people have. But, uh, you know, one that I kept coming across as I was researching the program is quality hospice care. I thought, well, Linda, what is quality hospice care as opposed to what isn't quality care?
1: You know, I think you can look at different metrics. You know, there's hospice compares. There's data online. You can compare other hospices. But what I feel defines a quality hospice is ground up having a supportive team that includes, of course, all of the interdisciplinary team members, but having physician support that absolutely acknowledges the really specific needs of hospice patients, having fellowship trained physicians that care for patients in the home, having physicians that can be, you know, doing home visits like my and my team members do. And having the support from the hospice organization itself to support all of those team members to provide the best level of care. So if I go to Susan and say, you know, Susan, I really need to escalate so- social work support for this patient because this family is in a crisis. How can we get a social worker there within the next you know, one to two days? Susan will make that happen. How can I get, let's say, an aide to come into this patient's house seven days a week because this patient's family is in crisis and they need that level of support? I'm not going to take no for an answer. Susan knows that. My team <laughs> knows that. And, and that's what I mean when I say it's a quality care supportive team. Because what we as a organization have found is that if we identify the needs of that patient and we try to meet them exactly where they are, we will utilize all the services that we have at our disposal and we will utilize them to the nth degree to make sure that those patients' needs are met.
2: We have a minute left. Uh, the population is getting older in this state and across the country. Uh, program a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the rising number of dementia and Alzheimer's cases. Uh, a lot of what you have described today, people who can make decisions on their own. What about those who are suffering from dementia, maybe advanced dementia, that can't make decisions? I have to ask you about 45 seconds. I
1: want them to encourage them to have a... Uh, surrogate decision maker, so that they have their wishes at least in writing, have a living will, have a durable power of attorney for medical decision making. It's important if they have, you know, let's say early onset dementia, that they get those wishes on paper. They communicate those wishes to someone who can make decisions for them when they cannot make them themselves. And have that in writing. Have that readily accessible in the home. Make sure your physicians have a copy of what a living will, durable power of attorney. All of those things are useful so that when those decisions are no longer capable of being, you know, discussed by that patient. They don't know. People will know what to do. Sounds like
2: good advice for anyone having all those things Mm -hmm. on paper. I want to thank our guests for being with us today. Dr. Maria Olander, Medical Director, and Susan Resivi, who is uh, Director of Family Services with Hospice of Central Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Thank you. You're listening to The Spark on WITF, your home for NPR and discovering all things local. I'm Scott Lamar.